Hi, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Volkwein's Music, a full-service shop that's been meeting the musical needs of musicians for over 135 years. They offer a huge selection of instruments, accessories, music, and more. They also have an unmatched instrument repair department with some of the most experienced technicians in the business. For years, they've serviced my personal and school instruments, and their attention to detail is why I and professional musicians from around the globe trust Volkwein's to service their gear. Head over to volkweinsmusic.com to see what they can do for you. That's V-O-L-K-W-E-I-N-S music.com. Helping people discover music since 1888. Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Nick Petrella. And my name is Andy Heiss. Those familiar with classical music will recognize Joanne Folletta's name. She's been the music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic for 20 years and has been a guest conductor in orchestras around the world. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is a strong proponent of teaching the next generation of musicians. Joanne is a multiple Grammy Award winner and has many more accolades, so we'll link to her lengthy bio in the show notes. I had the pleasure of working with her at the Sunflower Music Festival this year, and I'm very happy she agreed to be on the podcast. Joanne, thanks for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for, for working with us in the Sunflower Music Festival. That was a real treat for me, too. This is part two of our interview with Joanne Folletta. So I think it's fair to say that most conductors are curators of music rather than creators of new music. And by that, I mean playing established repertoire as opposed to participating in the creation of new works. That said, you've introduced over 500 works and have given 100 world premieres. Why is creating art so important to you and what can young people learn from your example? I'm so glad you you asked that question, Nick, because uh, I am not a composer, but I have the utmost admiration for composers, people who create, I mean, from composers of the past to, to living composers today. So doing new music for me, in addition to our repertoire, I mean, we are partly a museum, of course, the orchestra, especially we're a museum from, you know, the 1700s up through now the, the 21st century. Uh, but... Um, the the idea that new music is constantly being born and uh, being introduced to people, I love to be a part of that. I love to have the composer on the stage with me saying, can that be a little faster? Or, you know, I think I maybe didn't score this exactly in the way I wanted to. I really need to have more on the bottom line. Maybe we can try something. And to be there to help, to be there as a pair of ears that's listening, trying to understand what they want, it makes me feel like I have a little bit of, of the creative process. And I think it makes the orchestra feel that way too, because mm-hmm. I always want them to be very open to it as well. 
because it's a rare privilege to be in the presence of someone who's created something, especially in the moment when they hear it physically for the first time and we start to work on it. So I've done so much new music and and I've loved it. And I really think that I I don't really define it as new music because I think of our, our orchestra world as a continuum you know, we're just always building and, and on the past, we will never give up the past treasures we have. We're building on them. We're adding to the repertoire. But it's important that we write music now because who will know about our time? Who will know about 2021 unless we write music? I mean, I look back and I, I love to listen to the music of the early 20th century because it's such a turbulent time. You know, the First World War and uh, the whole change to city, living in cities and, and, and modern life and uh, the music reflects that. The music reflects what what people are worried about, what they're hopeful for. Uh, if we don't write now, we, we're just not documenting who we are. So that it's being a part of history, being a part of new music, and and I just love it. Yeah. So, do you and your board and and management and donors do you set aside money or do you fundraise for commissions? How how does that work? It's a combination of things. I mean, we have everything from composers who are looking for a place to write a piece and have already funding in place, but they don't have a vehicle to to play it. Um, That sometimes happens. Or composers that we identify that we can apply to foundations for funding uh, to enable them to have that time to write that piece. or consortiums. This is a very big thing now where, where you call other orchestras and say, okay, we're interested in, in, um, uh, in, 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 in uh, commissioning a work, but we can't do it all on our own. I mean, how about if we find three other orchestras and, and uh, do it together? And, you know, you can do the first performance. It doesn't matter. We'll all do it. I mean, we'll all be premieres of, of this piece. And, and that happens a lot. I mean, the Dallas Symphony, for instance, called us recently and said, we are commissioning Jesse Montgomery to write a piece. Um, we need another partner. Do you want to come in and be our partner? And of course, the cost for that is so much lower than if we were doing it on our own. So, And the great thing about that too, Nick, is that Jesse Montgomery gets six performances of her piece all over the country rather than that one world premiere that very few people hear, except if people in the city. So... So uh, it's exciting. It's very exciting to commission. You never know what the piece is going to be like, and it's an act of faith, I guess. But uh, it's thrilling. Let's take a quick break. If you're hearing this, you have a deeper-than-usual interest in music and musicians. Craft Brood Music is a curated streaming service that was created for you. It's the app that streams better music for serious listeners, and we split our income with the artists. Download the app at the App Store or Google Play and try a free two-week trial. Or check out the Craft Brood Music podcast, a deeper exploration of this music and these artists, available wherever you listen. more at craftbrewedmusic.com. Your bio mentions that the Buffalo Philharmonic is one of the leading recording orchestras for the Naxos label. What led to this and how does this reputation impact your role as a music director? 
Um, and how has the market for class- recorded classical music changed in the last 20 years? Well, our recording journey for us was one of the most important things that happened to us in these last 20 years while I've been with them. Uh, when I first came to Buffalo, Noxos reached out to us and said, we would like to add an, an American orchestra to our team because they had a lot of orchestras from all over the world. As you know, they're really international. Would you be interested? And I said, yes, we would be, uh, although the orchestra had not recorded very much at all. Uh, but they said, but the only thing we have to be clear is that we don't want another Beethoven cycle. We don't want Dvorak symphonies. We have everything. We want you to find us treasures that we don't know. Uh, and that was a big challenge, but it was a fantastic challenge. So uh, uh, I mostly, of course, had to do the research to find uh, pieces that people didn't know, concentrating on late 19th century and early 20th century. Uh, mm. So, I mean, names that most people don't know, uh, you know, uh, and and bring them to life. I mean, we even resurrected symphonies written by a, a man who died at Auschwitz, uh, uh, mm. Marcel Tiberg. I mean, all kinds of names. But it was the most important thing we could have done because we became a stronger orchestra because of recording. I mean, it, it, our first recordings were sort of terrifying and, and, you know, maybe a little rocky in places, but we learned how to focus. We learned how to utilize the limited time we have for recording because it's very, it's very um, tight, you know, when you're making a recording and it lasts forever. So, so we had to come up with how we, how we think about this, how we prepare ourselves for this. And the orchestra now is made Oh, it's maybe a hundred recordings, and it's and it's really it knows how to think in that way, and it's informed how they play concerts now because they're always thinking, is that ensemble perfect? I'm going to watch that intonation with the flute because I want it to be perfect. They're always thinking that way, like recording engineers, and it's really helped us, and it's in a way put us on the map um, about who we are now because. There are very few recordings of the music that we've done. So radio stations play it because it's music that's unusual and, and, and very beautiful. I mean, I, I have to make a statement that, you know, sometimes people say, well, if music were good, we would have heard of it. No, that's not true. Music is lost for all different kinds of reasons. You know, uh, in the case of a wonderful Irish woman composer, Ina Boyle, because of World War One, she could no longer go to London and and work in in London as a composer. She was cut off in Ireland. She she was her career stopped. Or people in the in the war in Europe, you know, and they that left all of their scores and maybe saved their lives by coming to the United States, but lost everything else. I mean, there are lots of reasons why we don't know music. It's like an iceberg that we know the tip of the iceberg and there's so much wonderful music. So that's been a great thing for us. It really has been great to record. Now today, the the change, as you asked about, is really that it's consumed more digitally than with CDs. Although in our orchestra community, in our orchestra audience, there are still many, many people who have their CD collections and listen to them all the time and love that idea of collecting CDs. But I think we're, we're moving more and more towards people downloading or streaming, and so that's available as well. As as I listened to your your answer to the to the question, I thought of uh, of a book. It's called Blue Ocean Strategy, and this is for the kind of the uh, the younger musicians. So so basically, while everyone, all the other orchestras are fighting uh, to release their Mahlers and their Beethovens. 
you're going to a separate ocean where there's not that competition and you can basically own that space. That's right. And that's kind of what you're doing. That's right. And it was very good for us. It also forced us to be really creative because there weren't any recordings we could listen to of these pieces. We had to sort of strategize about how to come up with a with a unified interpretation and and i i i had to rely on the musicians uh, for for their complete buy-in to this because very often we were playing from scores and parts that had never been corrected there were lots of mistakes lots of just little handwriting mistakes and they had to be completely with this project like we have to we're going to release this and it's going to be it's going to be the very best we can do so uh that helped a great deal that's a fascinating story, and I, I can imagine how musicians would be excited to be a part of that. It's almost archaeological in nature, right? You're, you're unearthing this thing that's never been seen before, and you're bringing it back to life um, and doing, you know, as, as best you can, you know, based on your experience. It is, and I think that, that they they have the right personality. They have the right personality and character for that in Buffalo. They, they're interested in it. They're really interested in why and how can we make this better. And the audience also comes along with us. They've come along with us for all these 20 years of, sure. of finding out these, these new names that they've never heard of. Uh, but um, they have always been open-minded. You know, Buffalo in the 70s, when Lucas Foss was here, was really the epicenter of new music. And sure. Lucas did things that, um, that probably no other orchestra was playing at that time. Um, really wild avant-garde new music. So the audience and the the audience came to to respect this. I mean, I wouldn't say they loved all the music they heard, but they respected the idea that 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 the Buffalo Philharmonic was uh, on the cutting edge of of new music, and that was important. So I think that that um, that open mindedness from the audience helped us a great deal. Sure. So if a musician wants to become a conductor. What do you think they can do to better ensure that they'll succeed? Well, a lot of a lot of young musicians ask me this, and first of all, I tell them don't don't stop playing your instrument because it's usually someone who's playing the violin on a high level or cello on a high level or piano. Um, and I, I I tell them, you know, it's not don't put your instrument down and just say I'll never look, play it again. Just keep playing, and and if you're an undergraduate school. Just do as much as possible as you can on your instrument. Get to the highest level you possibly can. It's great, certainly, to know an instrument on a high level, but it's also great to understand your musicians as players. You know, the, the difficulty of approaching a piece, that you know that firsthand. You know, that that is important for you to have that in, is part of your psyche. Um, so I just make sure that they're not going to give up on that. And then I tell them that, you know, you've got to just learn as much music as possible. I always encourage them to go to rehearsals, um, even more than concerts, because concerts, you know, you, you don't see the, the, the process. You know, go to rehearsals and listen to how musicians play, listen to what the conductor says and why, and if things change and why. I mean, that's really something I did a lot, and I, I learned so much from that. And then I, I tell them that, you know, you have to have a bigger sense of the world, too. You've got to learn about world history. I mean, you can't conduct Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra without learning about uh, his fleeing from Hungary in, in World War II and why he did that and what his life was like afterwards. You have to know that background because all of these composers are writing in their world. So you can't approach it without knowing about it. 
Uh, you can't approach music without reading poetry. I, I always feel very strongly about that because poetry is a musical language. And that, uh, that parsing, that phrasing, the stresses that we learn in poetry are the same as in a musical language. I mean, they, sometimes this surprises them because they think, why? That's a waste of time. No, it, it's not a waste of time at all. Playing chamber music I, as much as they can because chamber music forces you to listen to everyone and you will have to be listening to everyone on some, on some level when you're on the podium. And then just to be prepared to be studying, studying, studying. But, you, you know, most of the conductors who, who I think are working and, and working well in their studies and in, in their careers, love to do that. I mean, they open up a score and it's like, oh, yes, you know, this is wonderful. I mean, I, it, it's, it's nothing for an hour or two to fly by and you're enmeshed in that score. If you feel that way, then, then it's right. So, but I just always make them realize how much study it involves. Harder than to talk about is something that, that uh, they will learn as they go. And that's the psychology of dealing with an extraordinarily talented team. That's something that, that, that people who lead groups like that everywhere, I mean, business with the same thing. If you're dealing with a group of scientists uh, that are extraordinarily gifted and how do you get that group to, to work together productively and feel valued, you know? And of, and of course, it's, that's a lifelong learning experience, but that's certainly was not talked about in school. So maybe now if they have a psychology class, I don't know. But but you certainly learn uh, from working with musicians about, uh, uh, about their psyche and their very special personality and their, their extraordinary dedication to excellence. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's an amazing answer. I think there's just so much in there that, especially young students who want to, who want to, uh, any type of musician, whether a professional musician or conductor, they should go back and listen to that. You still go out and teach. Have you ever given a masterclass or a presentation on that specific content? I haven't. I haven't. I, I've talked to people about it, but um, um, but I realized that it actually, I should maybe because it actually surprises them. Like the idea of need, needing to know European history. Why? You know, I just, just, I know how Mozart goes. I know what it sounds like. (laughs) No, you know, the fact that Mozart was still working basically as a servant to, in writing this music, and and that was his mindset. What Beethoven did to, to, to free the composer to think of himself as an artist, as an important artist, all of that is very, is very vital to, to understanding music. And um, it's context. It's context. It's context. And, and, it, you can also share that with your audience because they love context too. You know, a lot of people in the audience are extremely intelligent. They may not be trained musicians, but they can certainly understand, you know, what was happening in the world and why this piece might have come into being and what it means. So um, I think it's just important to be a complete a complete person in a way and try always to learn more about the world around you. Yeah. It's storytelling, right? Um, you know, we're engrossed in this every single day. Sometimes it's hard to, it, we forget to stop and, you know, see the, the bigger picture. Yeah. Well, storytelling is very important, I find, because it amazes me how, how everyone of every age loves to hear a story, you know, and it, it can be 
you know, something about what the composer was feeling when he wrote this or what happened in his life or, you know, uh, why uh, Mahler, you know, at the end of his life, you know, regretted that uh, he hadn't been uh, able to allow his wife to be a composer. You know, all of these human stories that influence, uh, influence the music. I mean, people love stories on, on every level. Well, Joanne, we've reached the part of the interview where we ask all of our interviewees the same three questions. And so the first one is, what advice, some of these things we've kind of covered and we've kind of talked about throughout the interview, uh, but this is sort of the summation part of it. um, So the first question is, what advice would you give to others wanting to become an arts entrepreneur in your art form? What I the advice I would give is to forge good relationships with your colleagues you know, because you learn a lot from them and you will see them again. You know, this is in a strange way, a very small music world. The people that you're in school with or the people that you help at some point uh, with, uh, you know, getting a job for getting, getting a, you know, a, a reference for someone, uh, you'll see them again. And it's just beautiful to have that kind of friendship. And sometimes it, it can, you know, be a friendship that you don't talk to them for five years and then you meet up with them again. So treat people uh, in a beautiful way because, well, first of all, we're all involved in a world of beauty, but but we all have challenges and everyone needs help, advice, uh, a hand up, you know, to something, a, a suggestion of where they might go or a person to call. Uh, I think that's very important, that it's not just stepping up a ladder and leaving people behind. It's working in a group of beautiful people, beautiful artists. Yeah. What can we do to ensure the arts are more accessible and reaching the widest possible audience? You know, I think this next generation of musicians is the answer. And I think that they already have figured out that it's all about communication. You know, in the past, you couldn't imagine a member of uh, the Berlin Philharmonic actually coming to the front of the stage and talking to the audience about why he loves this Beethoven symphony. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't be done. Uh, but I think, especially in America, people are understanding, young musicians are understanding that talking about music, helping people understand, being open, not being snobbish about what you know about music and they don't, but... Uh, inviting them in, I mean, opening the door and say, come in and listen to this piece. I'll tell you why I like it. And I, I want to hear why you like, might like it. Um, that kind of communication is happening. And I think that music schools are starting to, to help uh, musicians realize that they, they are the solution, not only in the, the vibrant, vital, communicative way they play, but in how they write and how they speak. It's very important to, um, to, uh, let intelligent people who don't know about music feel welcome into your world. And lastly, what's the best artistic or entrepreneurial advice you've ever received? Oh my gosh. The best. Well, I, I guess it's in, in my case, it was uh, to always understand that you will never really know that piece of music. This is artistic. So never, you'll never really know that piece of music and you're on a journey to learn it. Um, and I think that that's, that's sort of informed my life. I love the idea that, that I'm on a road and I'll never get to the end of it. Or as uh, you know, Andre Previn said, every time he conducts a score, he gets a little closer to what it's all about, but he'll never get there. You know, the idea that we'll never get there. Um, 
I, I love that. I find that very intriguing that we just get closer to that um, that sort of uh, special essence of what it is. But we're in that we're in that orbit. I mean, we, we're we're in 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 that artistic world, and and the fact that uh, it's an endless road to me is one of the best parts of this professional life. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This this was a fantastic interview and a lot of uh, educational uh, nuggets in there for, for people to unpack. Well, thank you. It was a great pleasure talking to both of you, Nick and Andy. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Thank you.